You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Let's talk about a few things. There's some things going on in the news that have roots in history, so we'll talk about them. I mean, writer's strike, actor strike, that hasn't happened since Ronald Reagan. Uh, 28th Amendment, there's a governor who wants to propose one and a group of senators that think we already have a 28th Amendment. We'll get into that. Podcast recommendations and a few other things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But first, a little announcement. It is another anniversary of the show. We are now 17 years podcasting. You know, it started in late July 2006 on a desktop computer, horrible microphone, a silly cartoonish musical promo intro that I'm not going to play for you, but I had a kind of cartoon voice. No, no, no. My history can beat up your politics. Proud to be discussing... uh, politics and history for that long. I am very happy to have you as a listener. I continue to believe it's a unique type of show that is made for the podcasting medium. It couldn't have survived on radio. Another announcement of sorts that I have is that for almost the whole time I've been doing the show, which is now 17 years, I've had the same full-time job. has nothing to do with history or politics simply my employment. That recently came to an end. Um, So at this point, I am not working my full time. It was not my choice, but I am using that time to work as much as I can on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and developing it. Uh, So I'm looking at it as a good thing, at least for the near term until, you know, I, I don't know if this is a, this podcast, you know, can be reasonably a full-time job, but maybe for some time, you know. If you'd like to support the program, this would be a good time, as I'm, you know, it's pretty much my only source of income at this point. But only do it if you're able to and if you want to. Uh, there's two ways, main two ways, is you can go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and I just have a donation link there. You can donate any amount, you know, one time that you wish. Or if you'd like to continue to support it as a patron, go to patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. The letters of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. There's also a link for it on the MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com website. And go there and join the Patreon. And you there you can get special episodes. We have our special look at... Lyndon Johnson in the 1968 convention. We have a couple extras. We have an advanced preview of Carter 1977, which is something we're going to, an episode we're going to have on August 24th. But if you want to get it a little earlier, become a patron at Patreon. 
enough of that. Um, I appreciate support in any way. Even just listening is support enough for me. I, I've been doing this quite a long time. But, you know, there are some new circumstances not in my control uh, that have uh, led me to now. This is my full-time job. Okay. Let's get to that work, then, of looking at history and the politics of today. The first thing is the writers and actor strike. And, you know, this has been a um, an interesting development that I don't think everyone expected that the actors would join the Hollywood writers strike. And all of it has to do with the new technologies and the way that we consume entertainment, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, you know, the streaming services. You know, it's a lot different. We don't go to movies as often. And we're not just simply watching TV on network TV shows. So we're watching shows that are very cinematic and they're being presented on Netflix. We're also watching movies there. There's a tendency, always presentism, that we guard against on this podcast. It's, this is the first time something's happened. And if, if you look at the last time that the Actors Guild strike, that SAG struck, struck it was... For a very similar reason, and by the way, the writers had joined them around that same time as well. It was for a very similar reason, and it was the advent of television and the interplay between movies. So you had actors like Bob Hope, who had been in scores, hundreds even, of films, and they were just being run on TV to make extra money, and the studio was getting extra money from it. And all they were saying at the time was, well... Yeah, uh, you know, we're getting money from running these movies that we already ran and we already paid you residuals for it being in the theater on. We're getting extra money from running your image on the TV and your acting work on the TV. But, you know, you have to let us have that because that's keeping these studios alive. You know, it's not very easy to keep a studio going, you know, a fellow like Jack Warner might say. Enter Ronald Reagan. It's fairly simple. A lot of people think they're born better than others. I'm trying to prove it's the way you're raised that counts. And it's an interesting time because Ronald Reagan is had been the Screen Actors Guild president in the 40s. And he resigned that position because he believed it was hurting his acting career. He felt that every time he went up against Jack Warner in negotiations, you know, now when it came for Ronald Reagan, the movie actor, uh, all that um, he could be seen as is this opponent. You know, he said, Jack Warner never looked at me the same after I became SAG president. He was spending a lot of time on it. Uh, his wife, Jane Wyman, that was one of his her complaints about him that, Oh, I have to listen to him. He's such a pain. All he talks about is politics. Uh, I think it does reflect that within Reagan was a desire to and a liking and affinity for politics, not just for acting. It was always there. Over the course of the 50s, though, this is where it gets interesting. After he resigns as SAG president, he becomes the spokesperson for GE, and he also starts learning about um, receiving instruction on some very kind of conservative ideology, uh, anti-union, anti-socialism type thing. But the president of the SAG, Howard Keel, had resigned just at a point when the SAG is in crisis, when it's facing a negotiation over these TV residuals with the studios and producers. To some extent, there was no one else to go to 
but the previous SAG president, Reagan. And people had felt he was a pretty good SAG president. Uh, Nancy Reagan urged him not to take the spot. Reagan does it. I mean, this is the interesting thing. Reagan is not unconflicted either. He owns a piece of GE Theater, making him partially a producer, not just an actor. He also is very tied in with um, GE Theater Project, is tied in with MCA Review Studios, MCA Studios, which stands a lot to gain or lose from the striking negotiations. Nonetheless, he takes the position. There is very, there's a little opposition, but they really have no one else, the actors, to go to but this very experienced hand, their previous president. Here's from Bob Spitz, a Reagan biographer. There was clearly a conflict, but he didn't see it that way. He was an ethical man, and so he took a hard line in negotiations almost to overcompensate. But there's no doubt he was compromised. And producers in the negotiations dig in. They refuse to negotiate on providing any money for any movies made before 1960, the time that they're negotiating. They say, well, we'll talk about the future if you want, but nothing for movies made prior to 1960, which include Reagan's movies. On March 7th, 1960, the Screen Actors Guild goes on strike. I mean, it's not a long strike. Uh, they go on for a few months. I talked about this in the in the 12-part Reagan series. I mean, this is an undersold part of Reagan. Everyone knows him as the presenter, and he's pretty good. But he's a decent negotiator, and that certainly helped him in his presidential career. But let's put this aside. Reagan realizes there's going to be no movement on the on these residuals. He sees this as the producer's strong point. They're just not going to give up on it. Okay, so he says... What can we get in another form? So he says, okay, no residuals. We'll we'll give you that. Not everybody's happy about that, okay? Not only is Reagan himself losing some money, but his movies were B-movies. People like Bob Hope, um, Johnny Weissmuller of all the Tarzan films, Mickey Rooney, a child actor who had made all of these movies prior to 1960. They're all going to lose out big. Uh, Bob Hope will say that Reagan sold him down the river. Uh, Mickey Rooney will try to sue the union uh, unsuccessfully. But that's the deal they make. No residuals. Now, what do they get in, in return for this give? We want these studios to make a pension plan for the actors. With a one-time $2.6 million payment. A lot of money in those days. And we want a residual on movies made after 1960 after distribution costs are subtracted, which are often padded. So it's a, you know, there's a lot going on there, and it's funny. So Reagan was very conflicted. Um, it's not like he he did the job, though. Um, and so a lot of actors who tend to be a very liberal politics, it's interesting, got a big benefit for their future. That is, if they're in a movie and it's played on TV, they get money from a guy that probably was the, you know, most conservative president or the strongest voice for conservatism in the United States in his time. And so you see what's going on now, and we're we're at the same level. Um, the union's different than it was. Lou Cannon always described the Screen Actors Guild when Reagan was heading it up both times 
as a little bit of a gentleman's club more than a hard union, which I think it's more of now with Fran Drescher um, leading it with other and other folks that have led it. In his time, it was more of a club. It was a, you know, they'd meet with Warner and the others and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. Hmm. In 1992, the 27th Amendment to the Constitution passes. And a couple of things to say here. One is that it's not a very significant amendment. It has to do with Congress can't raise its salaries until um, after an election. So in other words, if you pass a bill now that says you're going to raise Congress's salaries, you've got to wait till after the election to get that raise. Obviously, that's setting it up. It's a it's a very kind of, uh, I find it uh, especially like, I don't find it to be the most important piece of legislation ever. I find it to be a little um, reminiscent of a paranoid style of government that these people in Congress just keep raising their salaries and taking money from you. It seems like, like if we were just involved as citizens more, we could make good choices about who the representatives are and not have to worry about such an amendment. But it comes from a period when Congress was being scrutinized scrutinized in the early founding of the Republic. It was not an amendment that got enough ratifications to make it. And a college student, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but I believe it's Greg Watson in the University of Texas gets an E on his, uh, or gets an F on his paper and decides that he, because the professor says there's no way to do this all too much time has passed between the, the ratification and now he goes and he gets the other legislature starts a movement and it's a second time period the 90s where the congress was under a lot of attack at that time you know newt gingrich is in the uh on c-span continuously attacking it's not just him but there was definitely a movement that congress has gotten too powerful and you know corrupt and we need to so the 27th amendment kind of is a reflection of that. I don't think it's the most important piece of amendment to the Constitution. And it's also more than, now it's 31 years old, and that's the last time the Constitution was amended. See, the framers of the Constitution were not enamored with even having amendments. It, you know this because it comes at the end of the Constitution in a way to stave off a potential Bill of Rights. The amendment procedure is difficult, and I believe it's actually more difficult now than it was. Not that it wasn't hard then, but, you know, when you're talking about um, America under the Constitution at first, you have 13 states, you need to get nine of them to pass a constitutional amendment. It's not as difficult, in my opinion, as getting three-fourths of 50, which is uh, 38 states. It's simply, a, it's a larger number. It's a greater number of states that can say no. It's a greater number of activities that need to happen than it was then. You know, that's simply said. Um, so I think it's harder and we don't pass a lot of amendments. I think the fact that certain amendments had to be passed by almost a force of war, if you're looking, if you're talking about 13, 14, and 15, uh, other amendments influenced around the time of wars, such as the Prohibition Amendment and um, the 26th Amendment allowing 18-year-olds to vote, and some necessary amendments, like the Child Labor Amendment. 
not passing at all. It's just we have a very tight procedure that simply, I believe, has borne out over time. So in 1921, as soon as women were given the right to vote in the first election in the 1920 election, I mean, women had the right to vote in various states before, as soon as they were given a right to vote, you started to see in Congress proposals for an equal rights amendment. And it is, it takes 50 years to get, uh, it's proposed every year in Congress or every term in Congress. It takes 50 years till 1971 for you to get the votes in order to put out a very simple amendment. Uh, let's read it here. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So, Hawaii ratifies it in 1972. New Hampshire ratifies it in 1972. So does Delaware, Iowa, Idaho, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, Tennessee, Alaska, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Colorado, West Virginia, Wisconsin, New York, Michigan, Maryland, Massachusetts, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, California. In the next year is 1973, Wyoming, South Dakota, Oregon, Minnesota, New Mexico, Vermont, Connecticut, Washington. There's a movement for ratifying this ERA, and it, it almost seems unstoppable at first. But it's going to be 1974, 1974 forward when there's a counter movement to both uh, stop ratifications of the ERA. Phyllis Shafley is going to be one of the most powerful sp spokespeople for this, going to make women have to join the army and join combat that it's not going to allow them to be housewives. All of these these kind of things are brought out against it. Maine, nonetheless, Montana, Ohio, North Dakota, Indiana ratify the amendment. Indiana is the last state in 1977 to do it. Congress extends the deadline, and it's attempted to be ratified in Illinois. And when that fails, the ERA effectively fails. Yet not so fast, supporters say. Uh, Article 5 of the Constitution silent on any provision for how long an amendment should take. So Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia, three states, have ratified the ERA since the time of passage. So you're noticing in the list of states I'm reading certain states that are really conservative stalwarts in politics. Idaho, the Texas, um, Indiana, uh, Wyoming. You know, not states that roll off the tongue when we talk about something that might be considered a progressive amendment. And there was just simply different political orientation and framing at this time. You had some liberal senators coming from some of those states at the time. You know, uh, South Dakota, where George McGovern was from. They ratify it. In the meantime, some states have officially revoked their ratification. That has happened in Idaho, Nebraska, Tennessee, South Dakota. And then, and that all happened before 1979, while they were still in an ERA debate. But then since, other states have done it, such as North Dakota. Uh, North Dakota, Kentucky, Nebraska, Tennessee, Idaho, Kentucky, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, North Dakota, there's a, there's a 
little tricky thing where the lieutenant governor was acting as governor in the governor's absence and vetoed the resolution rescinding. So there's a debate about that. In any case, you have several states who have now revoked the ratification. Well, so the article has these three parts. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, and this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. So that's the article. Now, in the joint resolution that proposes the amendment, resolved by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, two-thirds of each House concurring therein, that the following article is proposed as an amendment to the Constitution, which shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of several states within seven years from the date of its submission by Congress. Okay, that's one of the problems. And Congress does actually extend it to 1982. So now, I believe, this is just my opinion, I just state it, and you know, this is not been fully adjudicated. It's been in part, we'll talk about that, but not fully adjudicated. Uh, I believe two things. One, that Article V says nothing about states being able to resent. So once you ratify an amendment, you've sent that over to the federal government. Thank you very much. You've done your part as a state. You're done. The rest of it is a federal matter. It's for the Congress now to accept those ratifications and say that the amendment is passed. The precedent of the last amendment passed, the 27th, as silly as it is in its own what it's about, does set the precedent that you can take ratifications from states even 202 years old and apply it to something in modern times. But though the congressional resolution for what became the 27th Amendment did not contain any expiration. Now, modern amendments usually do. Okay. Here's a question. There's two, So I would have two arguments if I were a lawyer participating in a case. One would be that the language to set an expiration is not in the article itself. Maybe they don't want it because that's kind of sloppy. It's going to enter the Constitution. It would be a little sloppy to have, have a date in there. But whatever. It's not in the article itself, so it's not what people are actually voting on in these legislatures. They're not a three fourths of the state are not approving that time period, that expiration. Okay. That's one argument. My second argument would be you can change the Constitution by amendment, but you have to have an amendment changing that procedure. If you want to go out and have an amendment that says any amendments proposed, there's a seven year expiration, you have to get that done constitutionally. You have to go to three, uh, to the Congress and then to three fourths of the legislatures to get that proved. You can't change the constitutional process within a constitutional amendment about something else. In this case, about women's rights. You can't just add a little section that says, oh, by the way, for this amendment, we're going to use a different procedure. For instance, what if I asked you, what if the amendment said, this amendment that we're proposing will only be valid if seven-eighths of the states approve it? That would be unconstitutional. And I think expirations are in the same boat. Of course, this is something that's going to have to be adjudicated at some point. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There was some discussion among courts and um, various lawsuits about the ERA in 1982. There was a federal court at one point that ruled even the extension that Congress gave to its own amendment. The Supreme Court's final word on it was that you don't have the enough, you don't have the 38, so this is a moot point, and we're not going to rule further on it. The amendment has failed in a, of adoption no matter what the resolution of the legal issues presented here. The court spoke no further about this issue. You do have a case going back to the 1920s decided in 1939, Coleman v. Miller, about ch- a child labor amendment, which was so difficult to pass. It shows you how even an issue that everyone should be behind was so difficult to pass in the past. But the child labor amendment, um, had difficulty passing. And Kansas, a state that had rejected it in the 1920s, brings it up again in 1937, and this time passes it by a very tight vote. In in fact, it takes the lieutenant governor acting as the presiding officer of the legislature of Kansas to break that tie. And opponents were arguing, it's too late. Kansas already rejected this. In this case, the Supreme Court in Coleman Miller said, that a state can decide to ratify something after it rejected it. They cite that this had happened with the 13th Amendment in New Jersey back when. They also decide that the timing, whether something is too old to be relevant anymore, ratification is too old, that's not a judicial issue is what the court says. That's a political issue. That's up to Congress. So I think that you have ample legal evidence there to go and make a case for the 28th Amendment being the ERA 
However, what's the reality? The reality is politics. You're not going to get an ARA passed until there's at least enough support in Congress in both houses to get that passed. You're not going to get it past the current politics that we have. And there's going to be a lot of opposition to it. On the other hand, um, another way to look at this issue is that a majority of states have some type of close to equal rights amendments in their states, including some of the states that you wouldn't expect, like Texas, you know, equal rights amendments in their constitutions. Nevada just passed one in 2022. The Texas Constitution, Article 1, Bill of Rights, added November 7th, 1972, says, Equality under the law shall not be denied or abridged because of sex, race, color, creed, or national origin. Y'all. No, it doesn't say y'all. But everything else it does say. That's in the Texas Constitution. So at the state level, this thing that's seen as a big boogeyman out there, this ERA, oh, it's going to destroy life. It's operating in many state constitutions just fine. And I don't think Nevada is going to fall off the face of the earth. Um, well, if the ERA, ERA doesn't become the 28th Amendment, then uh, you do have Gavin Newsom out there who's proposing a 28th Amendment on guns to allow for waiting periods, background checks, red flag laws. And to make this clear that this does not violate the Constitution. To that, I would simply say, I don't think you need it. But uh, it may be that with some more recent court decisions that it's the way that the second is being interpreted that you need it. I read the second and I don't think I'm I don't think I'm out of line with Heller, which Heller specifically um, says that it's not a decision about waiting periods. It's not a decision about who can own a gun, what age limits, uh, mental health, etc. Specific language in the Heller decision that it is not a decision about that. The basis of Heller is D.C. told guy in a very high crime neighborhood, you can't own a handgun at all. There's no procedure to own a handgun in D.C. That's it. And you're a security guard. You have to leave your gun at work. Um so my simple, I think this is more of a publicity generating tool. It, it could be that um, uh, Newsom has run up against Second Amendment supporters so much that he's now seeking a amendment of his own. I think it'll be very difficult for something like that to pass um, three-fourths of the legislatures. And why do it when you don't need to do it? I, I don't think that... Um, what you really need is you're going to need enough support in the Congress to pass those laws in any case. And uh, if you don't have it for that, you're not going to have it for an amendment. Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Scalia writing in Heller v. D.C. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today, the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion, should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as school and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. 
We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. It may be objected that if weapons that are the most useful in military service, M16 rifles and the like, may be banned, then the Second Amendment right is completely detached from the prefatory clause. But as we have said, the conception of the militia at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification was the body of all citizens capable of military service, who would bring the sorts of lawful weapons that they possessed at the time at home to militia duty. It may be well true today that a militia, to be as effective as militias in the 18th century, would require sophisticated arms that are highly unusual in society at large. Indeed, it may be true that no amount of small arms could be useful against modern-day bombers and tanks, but the fact that modern developments have limited the degree of fit between the prefatory clause and the protected right cannot change our interpretation of the right. Okay, so that's a long paragraph, and it's not some radical document that's Scalia writing in Heller v. D.C. I don't believe those laws violate the Constitution, though. None of them. I mean, if they're very strictly enforced, if, uh, you know, we're picking at the edges here. You saw recently the SCOTUS Bruin case where New York would say, you know, you have to apply for a permit and there's a person in each county that you're going to, an officer you're going to have to apply to and say, why do you want a gun? And then you have to give your reasons and they'll say, you know, that was thrown out. And the substitution, if there is one, and this is still probably subject to test, will be, well, you're allowed to ban in certain areas um, and, and still, you know, Bruin did not address waiting periods and background checks and the like, mental health. Yeah, I wouldn't go for the constitutional amendment on something that, that isn't needed. Um, the word infringe is to break uh, we're getting confused, I believe, with the with the phrase infringe upon, which is a little bit different. But that's not what's in the second. It's infringe. The right shall not be infringed. To infringe is to break. That's the clear sense of the word. You have to destroy a right for it to be infringed. You notice it's not used in the URA. It's not used in, in other amendments. They use a bridge, which is a little different. Infringe, I believe, is a very strong, you have to do something very strong to infringe. And, um, people, and, you know, people argue, what about copyrights? Well, when you infringe a copyright, your use of a copyright destroys it. If you're there playing music, and if it's happening in large enough numbers, if you're playing music, the copyrights, people can hear the music through you for free. The, the, the artist is getting no revenue. So that's infringing. That's breaking it. So it's, it feels small, but it's actually a big deal. And that's the same thing I think about it. The, the simple measures like background checks and, and the like, red flag laws. I mean, depending on how they're written, of course, don't violate the second, in my opinion. A couple good podcasts to listen to. So... I've been listening a lot to Eyewitness History Podcast with Joshua Cohen. It's not part of my network. He's part of Parthenon, but it's cool. We They just concluded an interview with Paula Stone, who was at Kent State. I talked to her as well. 
He's got an R, um, a great episode with Jack Barsky, who is kind of a real KGB agent and a real kind of American. He was someone who was living here in America as a KGB agent. If you like boxing, he's got a great uh, interview with Jim Lampley, HBO boxing legend. Talks about calling fights and Ali and a lot of stuff. He's got an, a great interview with former CIA agent uh, Valerie Plame, who was outed during that uh, scandal during the second Bush administration. Got an article with Survivor from the Jonestown um, cult, Eugene Smith. And um, if you like the X-Files, he talks to an X-Files writer. He talks to Adam Curry, who was really the kind of considered the founder of podcasting. And he talks about podcasting history. And I just think this is a one of the greatest uh, episodes. So check out Eyewitness History. I really do like that one. I'm also enjoying um, History That Doesn't Suck, Greg Jackson, enjoying his World War I series on American involvement in World War I. We talked a bit with Chad Williams about W.E.D. Du Bois and the African-American soldiers in World War I. He gets into the Harlem Hellfighters and what they did. He also talks about the Marines at the Bella Wood and the really the battle that makes that um, the Marine Corps what it is today. And he has a interview with a uh, an expert on it. That's that's just great. So enjoying that a lot. I still find normal gossip pretty funny. It's not gossip about celebrities. It's gossip about everyday people and these crazy situations they get into. Find it quite funny. Uh, the long 70s. They have a, um, from May 14th, they got an episode to top 10 audio and musical gear. And it's them talking for like two hours about stereo systems and various uh, equipment. If you like any kind of audio and musical gear, man, listen to that episode that those guys have. Um, ben Franklin's World. They've got an interview with David Penny about treaties between the United States and American Indian nations. He studied over 300 of these treaties and talks about them and what they said. Uh, and I guess given my situation um, and the economic situation in the country, I find myself listening to uh, Farnoosh Tarabi a lot. Um, so money with uh, Farnoosh Tarabi, if you want a perspective on money and uh, Financial decisions, things like that. Um, she's got some good episodes. She's been podcasting for a while. I think I'll leave it there. I mean, how much more? You know, I listen to Lost Hills. That's been the last season about the Mickey Dora stuff has been pretty cool. You must remember this. I don't think I have to advertise them, but um, she's been having a, a good a good talk about eighties and nineties mu- uh, movies and their overuse of erotica or their. And the impact on society, um, you know, as they're trying to bring, making these movies to bring people to the box office. Um, what's it doing to the culture and things like that? Oh, that's it for now, you know. That's it for now. Okay. What have I missed? Uh, we're getting into a primary season, so you're starting to see the machinations. I think the most interesting thing that has occurred is um, DeSantis while generating a lot of attention in the press and a lot of uh, obviously getting reelected in Florida, 
has it doesn't appears to be not really getting a lot of traction as he goes out there and campaigns for president. It's very hard because if I say something directly about it, or I think if anyone who's more on the left of things says, you know, oh, DeSantis just doesn't seem to have it, you know, you're going to attribute that to bias. So I say, okay, just let it play out and see how he does. But my sense of things is that you're dealing with a person who's doesn't really have that political skill um, to go beyond where he is, at least right now. Maybe, maybe a few more terms and he develops it or something, but... So this is going to create a really interesting situation as we get to the Iowa caucuses, which even though the Democrats have moved out of Iowa, the, which I think is a mistake, I think it's a mistake for the party, accepted American political tradition, you could have something right after it, but don't, you know, it should be first, but maybe I'm biased there with ancestors from Iowa. Anyway, it's going to matter this year because it's the Republican side that's going to matter and you know, I I see Trump's strength in the polls, and I wonder what's going to happen, though, in those caucuses as people can start trading votes and determining whether they believe um, Trump is a good candidate, has the electability to become president. We saw what happened in 2004. Howard Dean had a lot of political support, particularly among more liberal voters in the Democratic Party. But the electability argument was key in Iowa caucus voters, and Kerry won those caucuses. Now, that's a different example, a different time, and, and all of that, but it does show you some of the things that can happen. There have been surprise results in Iowa. The other thing to look at is we the 1984 primary, you saw what happened there, that Gary Hart, by becoming number two, was able to create a lot of attention, even though it was a pretty low-down number two. You have the same setup here for the Iowa caucuses. It's going to be about who gets the two spot under Trump because someone might end up knocking DeSantis off um, given his performance so far. And is it Tim Scott? Is it Nikki Haley? Is it one of the many other candidates that have now appeared? You do have a, a large number of candidates. Uh, does Christie, for instance, who's going to get a lot of media attention, does he do any better in these caucuses than anybody else? I just wouldn't sleep on Iowa and its ability through its caucus system to surprise America, sometimes so much that America doesn't agree with the choice. I mean, maybe you get uh, maybe you get Trump v. Christie, Trump Christie Scott. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. And if there's anything, you know, you want to join Patreon, consider that, help out. Um, I... Do appreciate, I appreciate everything, appreciate the reviews, particularly those that you write on Apple Podcasts, really appreciate it. Appreciate that you're listening, that you tell others about the program. That's a great way to help out. Thanks for listening.